And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, as well as the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has other great podcasts like Marketing Made Simple, hosted by Dr. J.J. Peterson. Now, Marketing Made Simple brings you practical tips to make your marketing easy and, more importantly, make it work. If you like any of these topics, you definitely want to go check out the show, how to write and deliver a captivating speech, how to market yourself into a new job, how design can help and also hurt your revenue, creating a social media ad strategy that actually works. If these topics resonate with you, go check out Marketing Made Simple wherever you get your podcast. Today, my guest is Chris Noggle. He is the founder and CEO of The Money School. He is a former pro snowboarder turned money mogul. He is known as America's number one money mentor. His core belief is that success is built not by the resources that you have, but how resourceful you can be. His success and national acclaim have come in a large part from what he's learned firsthand from seeking a better way to create wealth and preserve wealth. Uh, He has built and owned over 19 companies. His businesses have been featured in Forbes, ABC, House Hunters. He had his very own HDTV pilot in 2018. Uh, He has built the Money School, Money Mentor, and the Money Multiplier. His successes include managing tens of millions of dollars in assets in the financial services and advisory industry and in real estate transactions. As an innovator and visionary in wealth building and real estate, he empowers entrepreneurs, business owners, and real estate investors with the knowledge of how money works. He is also a nationally recognized speaker, author, and podcast host. He has spoken to and taught over 10,000 Americans delivering the financial knowledge that fuels lasting freedom. So we spoke about his origin story and some of the things that he's learned over his life that have allowed him to operate at the level that he operates at right now. We spoke about after his story, uh, what he focuses on, which is helping people understand wealth, money, finance. We spoke about money myths, spoke about the truth about money. We spoke about private money lending. We spoke about the laws of wealth. We spoke about privatized banking or BYOB, be your own bank. We spoke about infinite banking. We spoke about recycling and recapturing your money. We spoke about finding ways for your money to gain interest and earn dividends even while you're spending it. And then we spoke about economics. We spoke about what's happened with the Fed printing trillions of dollars. We spoke about what's going to be happening in the years to come. It's not great. Uh, he is an ex- He's not an economist, but he spends a lot of time in the weeds understanding 
how our country, how the U.S. will navigate the next few years and how uh, inflation will affect the average person and also how the person, the average person, whether or not you're just trying to figure out how to make ends meet or you have an extremely large investment portfolio, how you can navigate the uh, impending recession. So let's jump right into it. This is Chris Noggle. He is a podcaster, author, speaker, founder, CEO of The Money School. It's a good story, and it's one I don't really often talk about. So it really starts when I was a kid. You know, I grew up in a lower middle class family. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic and really wasn't a big part of my life, and my mom raised me. And, and my mom raising me, we didn't have money. We didn't have resources. So if I wanted things, what my mom taught me, which was purely brilliant on her part, but she probably didn't know it was just a way for her to allow me to never think I can't accomplish things is when I wanted things, she taught me to draw them. I was always an artistic kid. I loved drawing cartoons and, you know, whether it was a skateboard or a BMX or, you know, I'll get into a story about a pond in the backyard. My mom would just say, well, go draw it out. Show me what it looks like. So I would literally, I'd go through BMX plus magazines. I'd go through snowboard magazines, skateboard magazines. I'd find pictures of things that I resonated with that I wanted to accomplish and I would draw them. And then I would talk about them to my mom. And, and, you know, we talked earlier about like the idea of just focus, you know, focusing on one thing and that one thing will always happen. Well, that's kind of what my mom taught me to do. And at a young age, my mom taught me how to save. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, one particular thing. My mom needed a lawnmower. Our lawnmower was on its last leg and we had two acres of land. So a lawnmower was pretty important. We didn't have money to hire somebody. So my mom started saving all of her change and she made a point to show me how this worked. She'd come home and, you know, after going grocery shopping and she'd have change in her pocket and she had this big glass jar in her, in her closet. She would take me in there and show me how she saved. Well, after I watched this for a little while, I wanted to do the same thing, you know, monkey see monkey do. So my mom got me this and I still have it today. It's right over in the, in the next office, a little black box with a slide top. And what I started doing is my grandparents lived in a mobile home park. So I would go out there and I would go around to the neighbors and ask if they needed weeding or their, their windows cleaned. And got to remember, I'm like five, six years old at this point, maybe a little older, but it was in that range. So when I would make this money, it was pocket change, you know, buck, two bucks, maybe five bucks. You know, if I did a, a whole land, landscape thing, which I didn't, wouldn't call it landscaping, it was pulling weeds back then. <laughs> and I would come home and I'd give the money to my mom and she'd put it in this box. So fast forward, this is how I learned. Then, you know, when I was a little older, the one thing my dad did teach me is how to fish and I loved fishing, but to fish, I had to go up the street and a long walk to this little pond and there was never any fish. So I said, well, why don't we have a pond in the backyard? So I got this idea. Why don't I just dig one? Remember when you're a kid, you know, I have a 23 month old. When you're a kid, you don't have boundaries like we do as adults. We haven't been tainted. We haven't had enough people in our lives tell us we can't do things when we're a child. So for me, like the simple, the simple goal was I want a place where I can fish and catch fish. So in my mind, as crazy as this sounds, just dig a pond, dig a hole. So I literally went in the backyard and I did a whole YouTube video on this and I started digging a hole and I hit rock and I got all upset. And, and my mom said, well, you need to go to where a low spot is where water sits. So I remembered far back of the yard, there was a spot where in the winter when all the snow melted and we're in Buffalo, we get lots of snow. There was this place where water sat. So that entire spring and summer, every single day after school, I went out there with a wheelbarrow and a shovel 
and I just dug and I dug and I dug and I dug. And now there's no like pretty story to this. I, I ended up digging a pond and you know, when, when it rained, we had water and I'd go up the street on my four wheeler, catch some sunfish and some catfish and put them in my pond. And I would sit out there for hours. I remember just sitting there for hours trying to catch these fish. Now, all of you are laughing, listening because you're like, dude, you just caught the fish and you threw them in the pond. They're not going to, they're not going to, you spooked them. They're not going to take the bait. I didn't know this. I had a pond. So that man, that manifestation of thinking about this and doing this. Now, the one thing, like first it started with the, the idea and then it started with thinking about it over and over and then actually taking action, going out and like digging a pond is no small task. Uh, I went out there recently and the hole that I dug is still there. It still holds water, but clearly not good for fishing. So now fast forward a little further, all right, I'm getting older. And I'm in high school. I'm, I'm just a punk skateboard kid. You know, I, my goal was to be a pro snowboarder. Living in Buffalo, New York is not the mecca for snowboarding. And I remember I didn't have money to buy lift tickets. And my first snowboard was a used board that, you know, really was just terrible. But I would take that board up the street and we had this hill. There was a four-wheeler track up there that just had a little hill. And I'd build a jump in the winter and I'd, I'd just keep hitting it and destroy myself. But whatever, I was a kid. And then all of a sudden, my, my one friend, Jack, said, well, let's go up to the resort. And I, I didn't even know what a resort was. Uh, I'd seen pictures of this in magazines. There are these big mountains. And I'm like, oh, wow. So we went up there. And I remember my first run, I hated it. I'm like, I can't do this. I almost gave up. And this would have been in my life. This probably would have been one of the first times I was willing to give up on something. And I'm sitting in the lodge. And Jack comes down. And he says, let's go up for one more. And I'll teach you. And I didn't want to, but I went up. I'm soaked. I'm tired. I'm beat up. We go up one more and something clicked. And that was the point where, you know, I really fell in love with it. And I came up with the crazy idea that I'm going to be a pro snowboarder. I'm watching the VHS tapes and, you know, the snowboard uh, magazine, which back then was uh, Transworld. And I'm looking at all these photos of my, my heroes, Ted A. Hawkinson, who I've had on my podcast and, and all these just legends, Craig Kelly. And I remember, I'm like, I want what they have. I want to do what they're doing. So instead of going to the resort, I couldn't. There was a country club, the Lockport Country Club, which is where I grew up. My mom would pick me up from school. She would drop me off at the country club. Now, you, you got to know, like, school ends at right about 2.33. By the time I get there, it's 3. I have to build a jump. So now it's 4, 4.30, and it gets dark at 5.30. I have one hour to accomplish the un, unfathomable of all these <laughs> tricks I had lined up. And I remember in the early years of doing this, I would – I remember I'd be going, I'd get in my groove, and then all of a sudden I hear the dreaded honk, honk. My mom is picking me up, and I didn't want to leave, so I figured out I have to get in better shape. So I would come home, and my idea was, all right, I, gotta, I, I can't run up this hill enough times and keep my wind, so I just got to get in shape. So I ran up and down my backyard in, in Sorel boots to get in shape so that when my mom dropped me off, I could get more hits. And then I started pre-planning it and building the jump beforehand so that when I came back, the jump was already there. I just had to fix it up and you know pack it down with some snow. And, and that's how I did it. And, and it's crazy to think about that, right? Because when you think about a pro snowboarder, you think, oh, they're traveling around doing all these events. Like I didn't have that luxury. I didn't have the money. And that, that came later, but my early years were spent learning tricks in the summer on a trampoline. And the tricks were just tricks I watched in VHS tapes. And all that stuff made me a really good snowboarder because I was regimented. So when I was learning tricks, I would, I would hit it over and over and over and dial that trick in until I moved on to the next and the next and the next. So when I actually started competing 
and I actually started going out and having mm -hmm. a little extra money because I worked, you know, odd jobs at restaurants and that. I could go to the resort and for Christmas, my number one thing was always a 10 pack. So they'd buy me a 10 pack and that, that's 10, 10 times the resort. And I would go and I would just compete. And lo and behold, when I competed, I, I thought I would suck. I actually did really well, even my first contest because I'd practiced so much. And then I, then the barrier came from people telling me, you can't be a pro snowboarder. You live in Buffalo. And I'm like, okay. So I needed, I needed to see somebody that had done this journey. And there was these two guys, Blair and Shane and Blair and Shane were pro Burton riders. They didn't live in, in uh, Buffalo anymore, but there was one time I heard rumor that they were doing a photo shoot in this brand new park that they had just built at kissing bridge. And I, I made sure that day I was there. I was the, the fly on the wall, if you will. And I was watching these icons, these two pro snowboarders in the best gear hitting stuff. And I just, I remember there was like nobody there. Cause it was like afternoon, you know, there were big photo shoot. And I was like one of the only riders in the park, surprisingly. And I just kept following them and I felt embarrassed. Cause you know, I let them go way ahead of me. So they didn't think I was following them, but I just kept following and doing laps. And then eventually Blair like saw that I was doing this. He said, Hey, you're pretty good. Like ride with us. And and at that moment, something clicked and I said, well, I can do this because I seen these two guys who grew up where I was that had made it and I just went for it. And that, that was, uh, that's how I kind of became a pro snowboarder. And I, I was a pro snowboarder from the age of about 19. I was amateur before that 19. And I rode all the way pro up till I was 34. And a lot of things spun off of that. Um, in my early years, when I was 16, I had gotten a job, just like all of us. I started working on a farm at 14, but at 16, I got a big boy job at a restaurant. And I remember the owner of this restaurant was just a nasty man. And he would degrade me so badly that I, I literally got to the point where I was clinically probably depressed. I thought I could do nothing right. It affected everything. My grades, my willingness to want to go to school. My whole life was spiraling down because this one guy made me feel like I could do nothing right. And the day came when I was 16 and I, I marched into work and he started writing on me and I don't know that day was just, that was it. I was done. And I told him, I said, I quit that marked the day when I quit trading hours for dollars. Thank God that I, I did this at a young age at 16. I came home thinking my mom was going to be so mad because, you know, I was coming home early and, and I, I had a plan the whole way home. I had planned out what I was going to say to her. And I said, mom, I, I quit, you know, told her the reasons why thinking she was going to be super upset and I said, but I've got, I want to start a clothing line. Me and the, my art teacher, Mr. Mahalski, have been printing shirts for the school. I want to ma start making my shirts. I'll sell them out of my backpack. I'll travel with them to snowboard contests and sell them to my friends. And, and that, that was my first company. I, I started it in uh, 1992 at 16 years old. It was called Fat Clothing Company, P-H-A-T. Now, some of, some of you are listening are in today's world. You're like, oh, wow, you became an entrepreneur. No, no, no. I was solving a problem with this. I, I didn't care about being an entrepreneur. I didn't even know what that was. You know, all I wanted was enough money to be able to travel without having some guy degrade me and make me feel worthless. And the, the reason I wanted to do this is remember I told you I was artistic. I was, my whole childhood was spent drawing pictures of the things I wanted, skateboards, snowboard, dirt bikes, whatever it was. I was just good at drawing. So I draw this artwork with this logo fat. And back then fat came from, it's cool. Oh, that was fat. It's just the thing back in the 90s. And some of you are too young to remember that. But uh, I started making shirts and I printed them with my art teacher. And then, you know, we got past the capacity he had. So then I had this other guy, Mark Art, in my town, start printing shirts. And I sold them out of my backpack. 
And then I got my friends to start selling them out of their backpack. So a dozen shirts, I sold them, I made two dozen. Two dozen shirts sold, I made two dozen and 12 hats. And, and I just kept going like this. And as I sold them, I bought more. Well, that forced me to have to actually start learning a little bit. So this is unique, I'm in high school, but now all of a sudden I took a liking in, in this business and I had heard about this thing called accounting. You have to have accounting because my guy that did my taxes is like, well, do you have, you, you know, what are, where are your books? So I actually started, I took accounting courses in school and, and the accounting teachers, Mr. Crosley, notice how I remember these names is back you in the do, yes. because these people were so influential. They spent time with me after school to teach me, you know, debits and credits and spreadsheets. So I started doing these things that I was learning in school, but I was applying the knowledge different than all the other students. They were just learning it to pass. I was learning it because I needed it for my business. Fat Clothing, one year later, had three seamstresses, you know, that basically me and my mom would buy pattern, like little pattern templates at Joanne Fabric. And we'd come home and we'd make a prototype because my mom could sew. And then I would then give it to the seamstresses, which were just local ladies that wanted side work. And they would stitch these, these jackets and shirts and pants. And then I would test them out on the hill. And then I built a snowboard team. All this was going great. I was selling my clothing on the road. And then when I was 17, something happened. And it was from being on the road in these snowboard contests, I'd stopped at a lot of snowboard shops. And I got this fixation that that was what I wanted. I wanted to own my own skateboard snowboard shop because these guys had it made, right? They got up in the morning and they went and they did their dream. They, they ran their snowboard shop that I was selling my clothes to. And then in the afternoon, whenever they wanted, it seemed, they went out and snowboarded with me. And I just had to have that. I needed that lifestyle business. And that goal, I found out, would take about 70000 bucks. So I went to everyone Can I ask you something thing. on that? Yeah, please. Can I ask something on that? Because you, when you find your why, when you find your why, you're so driven. But <sighs> do you know Do you know what, what makes you tick? Do you know why? <laughs> do you know why the snowboard shop? Like, it's, it's a nice idea. But there's a, probably a thousand other things that you saw while you were going city to city that you could have been inspired by or interested in. So how do you find that? Because it was in line with my why. It was in line with the what. The what was I wanted. Snowboarding was my life. Skateboarding in the summer, but snowboarding was my life. It was all I thought about, all I cared about. So everything was just a means to, to that. And a skateboard snowboard shop embodied everything that that why was. And the funny thing is, is, you know, we were talking about a lot of books, but there's another book that talks about this. And there's a lot of books that do, but if you figure your why and your what out, like I did now, I, I did it on accident just because I was so in love yeah. with snowboarding. But if you figure the why out, the how always happens. But so many people in their lives and me, which the next part when I was 17, the how is what stood in my way. And the how was 70,000 bucks. How do I get 70,000? Everybody says no. You know, everybody tells me I'm crazy. My father says, son, this is a stupid idea. You're going to lose all the money. You need to come work. I'll get you an interview over at Harrison Radiator and you can do what I did. And, and I despise that. And it, it ended up in really a, taking a, a negative um, relationship with my dad. I actually sent him the single Cats in the Cradle because um, he, he just had no desire to support my dreams and no faith in the fact that I could do this. So the how was, was I went from the what you, you were talking about. I think this is where you were going. And now all of a sudden I took my focus off the what, and now I focused on the how, because everybody that I asked, you know, about money drove me to, you can't do this. So the how became my obstacle. And I, it almost became an obstacle that made it so that my dreams died right then and there, 17 years old, uh, fat man board shop, which was going to be the name of the shops. And still is, you can look it up. Fat man board shop still exists today. I sold it in 2010. It's 20 some year legacy of mine. And, um, 
I remember I got a bank, MNT Bank said, hey kid, you know, we like the idea. We'll give you an SBA backed loan, but you need collateral. I'm 17. I don't even know what collateral is. I know that sounds funny, but you know, I figured it out and I said, Oh, perfect. I got a KX 125. I got a 1986 Buick Skyhawk and I got a baseball card collection. Will that suffice? <laughs> Not quite. Uh, so they, uh, they pretty much said, no, we need something of significance. And I, I'm like, I don't have anything, but my mother remember, I, I told you she was really a big part of my life. And I call her my unconditional one, but she watched all this happening. She watched this fallout with my father. She watched all these people tell me no, and then I can't. And she just sat back. But my mother had one thing, one asset, and that was the house she got in the divorce. And the house literally had about $75,000 in equity in it. And my mom made the decision to put her house up, the only thing she had in the world, so that her punk skateboard, snowboard kid could chase his dream. And she did, and I did it. In November of 1994, Fat Man Board Shops opened. There's a thousand square foot skateboard snowboard shop in the Lockport Mall. And that was my my first big plunge into being an entrepreneur. Now, remember, I'm 17. Most 17 year olds are out, you know, having a good time, maybe experimenting, doing the fun things with their friends, going out. Now I had this business and I knew my mom's house was on the line. And it led to many sleepless nights, many nights crying in the back room of the, you know, the shop, not knowing how I was going to make it. But Five years went by, I paid that loan off and Fat Man was real, it was mine. It was, this is gonna make everybody laugh. My, my projections for the bank showed that my pay would have been $30,000. Now we were talking about income, but this is, this is the 90s, so I guess 30 wasn't terrible. But I thought about that and I'm like, that is $30,000 to me at that point would be the equivalent of today, probably $3 million. And I'm not even kidding. And I'm talking not dollar for dollar, but I'm talking mindset. Yeah. It was more money than I ever thought I could earn. It was more money than I ever needed. I never really made that much in these early years because I bought inventory, but that was what I was supposed to make. I took a salary uh, every week of 200 bucks, and that's what I lived on, which was surprisingly enough for a simple kid to get by. And those stores flourished. They, they kept going on and on. I started other clothing lines, and everything was going like a dream. And, and, I'm and you're still pause. snowboarding. You're still oh, I snowboarding. I still snowboard well. a lot, man. Yeah, I was. Yeah. The funny thing is, this year, you know, I tried something different. Oh, I, I only went. Wait, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I didn't mean now. I, I didn't. I, I we can talk about now. I was talking about as you're building this store, you're still trying oh, to. Yeah. 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 I was. Yeah. I was a pro snowboarder at this point. Exactly. Know? So, so, or I was on my. I'm sorry. At the beginning of the store, I was on my way to being a pro snowboarder. But you know, by 18, 19, around there, I became a pro snowboarder. I got my first contract and was making a little bit of money with the the contract. And uh, it was like a dream. I think back to those days and I think, man, what, what a life I had, you know? And, and it wasn't a life because of money. It wasn't a life because I came from a family that had money. It was a life that came because I chased my dream and I didn't, I ignored all the people that told me I couldn't do things and I just pushed on. And, and I just wish, and I hope I can instill this in my daughter. You know, she's 23 months old, but as a child, we, we don't have limitations. We don't have barriers. There aren't things that we in our mind think we can't do, you know, and, and I, I had these up until reality kicked in and started telling me I couldn't do things. And many people allow that to dictate their future. They let other people's failed realities, other people's failed dreams dictate where they're going to go in life. And, and unfortunately it's a sad reality. Too many people take the bait. When you really look at it, Earl Nightingale talks about it in the strangest secret in the world. You know, if you look at 
successful people, you look at 120 year olds and you ask them all, are you going to be successful at the age of 60? Every one of them, 100% will say yes. Reality is fast forward to 60, take those same 120 year olds, but now they're 60 years old. Statistics will prove that only one of them is wealthy, one out of 100, and only five of them would be considered financially successful. How can that be? And, and folks, I'm talking about the United States of America, the greatest country on earth, the land of opportunity. That's the numbers here. That's not Africa. That's not you know anywhere else. That's here. Only five out of 100 people are successful. And, the, and Earl's you know speech talks about it perfectly. He says the reason for that is only five of them people, the reason between success and failure is one thing. Five of them created something. They went out there and they, they created and they, sh they shut everything else out and they created. The other 95%, the difference, why they weren't successful, why they're not financially success successful by social, secu social security statistics is because they gave in to other people's failed realities. They conformed is what he would call it. And I didn't conform. My success, and I, I, I'm only taking you up now till you know my early 20s, my success up to that point was for one reason and one reason only. I was a creator. That was it. And I would not conform to everybody else. I wouldn't. They tried. They tried hard, and it was hard for me. It was hard not to. That did change, Scott. You know, As things went on and I was living this fantasy world of just my dream, pro snowboarder, magazines, video parts, you know, Back then, pro snowboarders, you know, the top guys made 250,000 and, you know, I was probably 30. So I was, I was like in the middle, but I was, I was doing really well. And I had my shops, which were successful and I did some odd side jobs and things, but uh, take me up to the 2000s. So a lot happened and we're going to skip a lot of it. But in the 2000s, if any of you remember, the planes hit the towers in 9-11 and I'll never forget, I had just gotten back from California the day earlier. So 9-10, I had landed from California. I was out there for a, a surf expo, which was a trade show. And I remember driving to my brand new stores. I had three locations now. And I, I'm hearing about these planes hitting the tower. And what spiraled out of that is the realization that I had never gone through a recession. I didn't even know. I didn't know what it was. I'd only seen good times, much like almost every person today, especially millennials. You've only seen good times. Well, that was me that. Well, that spun into the dot-com crash, which spun into the first recession I ever took part of, which also meant my retail stores took a nosedive of 30%, just, just like that. It was like I was on top of the world, and now my sales are down 30%, and I'm struggling to make ends meet. I barely could make my car payment, which was no big deal. I think it was like 200 and some bucks a month, and all of a sudden, I had to go get a job. I literally had a decision. Like, if I'm going to keep living this, this fantasy world... I got to get a job. The one thing that I had defied and gotten away from all these years now just made, became very clear and I, I had to do it. I applied to be a pizza delivery guy because I thought I'll work in my shops during the day. I'll deliver pizzas at night with my friend Mike. Thank God Little Caesars wasn't hiring at that moment because they said no. And I put my resume out and this is where Wall Street comes in. Now, remember, I have no work experience outside of a few odds and ends things. I'm just an entrepreneur and I had been my whole life. So when I put my resume out, it was very basic. You know, I run skateboard, snowboard shops, and here's my education. I got two years of community college. Not, I wasn't a poster child for a resume. And I got call after call after call from Wall Street firms. And I'm like, what? And so I, I literally watched Wall Street, the movie, because I didn't even really understand it. And I'm like, yeah, I want that. 
So I went and interviewed and I ended up getting into Wall Street and that's where the next phase started because this was a this was a really difficult thing in my mind. So up to this point, I wore hoodies, I wore beanies, I wore baseball hats, like I was just a snowboarder, right? And now all of a sudden I'm forced to have to put suits on every day. And I remember my grandmother, who was a huge part of my life, took me to Lurch and Dally, a tiny little locally owned shop, and got me my first suit, a gray suit, a gray shirt, and a black tie. It was a zip up tie, because I didn't know how to tie a tie, and I went to the interview. But I felt so out of my skin and out of my comfort zone wearing a suit. I'd never put one on, and now all of a sudden, now I gotta wear one every day. So it was difficult in the beginning of me making a transition from snowboarder to Wall Street guy. And you know, the story really comes down to, and you're familiar with a brand called Volcom. I'm wearing a Volcom shirt now, and it's been a very important brand in my life and in my shops. But Volcom, thank God, made suits. Like for their snowboard really? athletes, yeah, they made suits. And <laughs> Nobody would have known this, but I had a shop. So I got the catalogs, right, for Volcom. And in the back, like they had these special order suits. So I started ordering Volcom suits because in my mind, Volcom's a skateboard, surf, snowboard shop. If I'm wearing a Volcom suit, dude, I'm cool enough. And when I come from the Wall Street job back to my shop and I'm wearing a Volcom suit, I felt like I, I, I kind of made that transition work in my mind. And whether that makes sense to any of you or not, it doesn't really matter. But to me, this was a very difficult transition. So I, I guess the biggest thing that I will tell you is when I got into Wall Street, the one thing I was very, you know, adapt to is I was in the bullpen. You know, it's where all new reps go. They throw us in the middle and, you know, they say dial. And that's pretty much it. And I watched intently when I was there, all the guys were on the outside in those big offices. And all these guys were, you know, 100,000 or more producers. Like they made big bucks. But I remember they got there at nine o'clock at best. And then they went out for an hour or two hour lunch. And then they were usually gone by 4.30. And I said, you know, and I started talking to him, how long did it take you to go from where I'm at to here? You know, five years, seven years, whatever. And I said, well, I wanna do it faster. So to do it faster, I just have to do everything they're unwilling to do. I started getting into work seven in the morning. I did all my prep work, got all my paperwork done. So when the, you know, the market opened, you know, I was dialing. And then when they went for lunch, I really didn't have money to go to lunch at this point. I just, I made calls and I actually got people to answer the phone. And then at 4.30 when they left, I made appointments to go meet people at their kitchen tables. And I did this for years. I was, a, I was the number one rookie. Okay. So out of the first year, I was, they called it the new org. I was the number one guy there. I kept winning and I became very competitive because of snowboarding. So I always wanted to be number one. And I just kept doing this over and over. I made 74,000 my first year and it just was a vertical climb after that. And I became one of the top financial advisors for this company. And I was literally crushing it. Um, I dabbled in some real estate because I had watched some TV shows where they were doing some flips. Uh, Property Wars, I think was the show. So I, took my stab in 2006 at a flip and made 8,000 bucks, hardly worth even talking about, but it taught me some lessons. Did another one the next year. And in 2008, right before the great recession hit, I took a big leap of faith because I was making good money. I had a bit of an ego and I had people that were willing to lend money. I, next to my main fat man shop on Sheridan drive was a dilapidated paint store. And I remember the morning I drove to work there in front of it was a sign that it was for sale. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I can take that. I can convert it into a strip mall and that'll be the new home of Batman board shops. So I found a group of this group of guys, one of them, a very nasty man that were crazy enough to lend me 340,000 bucks on a hard money loan. And they did. And <laughs> Scott, you know what happened next? 
You know, they got, it was like getting hit by a Mack truck at full steam ahead. The Great Recession hit me that November, right before the Christmas season. And it's irrelevant when it started or when it didn't. This is when it hit me because Christmas was my big, big, I mean, we made 60% of our money during the Christmas season at the shops. And I had this strip mall, two buildings down that I spent all my waking hours. I usually got home about two or three in the morning from painting and doing everything. And then I went right back to Wall Street the next day, paint and fingernails and everything. But everything shut off. My financial advisory job, which I was making hundreds of thousands, literally flatlined. Nothing. I went into damage control. People, the only calls I got were people yelling at me. My retail stores dropped tremendously. Our Christmas that year was 30, 40% off. And all of a sudden I just started thinking, how am I gonna do this spiraling out of control, wondering how I'm not gonna default on this hard money loan. And gosh, I'll never forget the day. I had exhausted my 401k loans. I took all the money I had in investments out. I, I was down to my last month. I had about enough to make it a month and then maybe some income could carry me a couple more. And I knew that there was no way I was gonna make it. So this is that moment folks where the inevitable starts to become real and you start thinking, I'm gonna lose this. I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm not going to be able to keep my stores. I'm not going to be able to keep the strip mall. So I did what I guess any smart guy would do. <laughs> That's a toot men. But I came home to my brand new girlfriend who had just moved into my house. And I said, sweetie, I need your help. Sure. What, what do you need? <laughs> she had a big, big girl job at uh, one of the big banks. And I said, sweetie, I need you to help me pay the mortgage. I need you to help me pay the utilities. And that bedroom down the hall, I'm going to rent it out to my friend Pete, who worked for me too. And the bedroom upstairs, I'm going to rent to my, my friend Jessica because I had figured all this out. This is how I'm going to make it. And uh, I, I was stupid enough to think that I had at least a 50-50 shot of keeping this girl. My friends later told me, dude, you had like a 10% shot of her saying yes. But I guess she kind of liked me. And, you know, she... Uh, you know, we're married now. She's the mother of Vivi and, you know, we're still together, but she did. She, she took that stand and allowed that. And that's how I made it through 2008. The next couple of years were super hard. And, you know, I, I struggled and I got into real estate pretty deep, got up to 36 units by 2014. And then again, realized that I didn't know what I didn't know because in wall street, I'll tell you something and we're going to get to this and then we'll, I'll stop talking. I, I feel terrible that no, I, long dude, dude, I never get don't to even... share this story. Dude, don't, don't worry about it. I love the story. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, what words come to mind when you think about entrepreneurship? For me, it's grind, hustle, strategy, hard freaking work. Because building something from the ground up is anything but easy. HubSpot is on a mission to help your business grow better with a CRM platform that's easy to buy, use, and love. With thousands of integrations, teams actually use HubSpot works the way you do, hard. And if you want to figure out how to streamline your deals, easy. The Sales Hub makes it easy to close more deals by automating your busy work. If you need to automate your social media, piece of cake. The Marketing Hub has everything you need to publish, post, and monitor your social media channels all in one place. Learn how HubSpot can make it easier for your business to grow better at HubSpot.com. And, and, I, and I like how scrappy you are. And I want to just, after you tell this story, I want you to look at it in hindsight and just understand like how you like the the thought process you went through in figuring this out because your ability to figure shit out is absolutely incredible that a lot of people would just crumble and i want you to understand how you got that and how you navigated this and what do you think sort of gave you that mental fortitude to allow you to persevere when you went through 
post 9-11, then major recession, asking, and and I know it doesn't, I, I don't know if this, what this sounds like to people that are listening for even like asking your partner for help and when shit's hitting the fan, but that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. That's, that is a tough thing to do. And then to have somebody step up and help you, that's also very incredible. But I want to, you have a, you have a, a mindset that's uh, very impressive. That's all I can say. But anyways, yeah, it's, yeah. And I don't know where it comes from. I, I, I just give so much credit to my mom just for my upbringing. I mean, when you don't have anything and you see other people that have things, you just want them and you just go after it. And, and that's, that's this next phase. You know, I, I made it through 2008 barely. And now all of a sudden what I had realized during this is all my clients, my financial clients, like they were all riding this roller coaster down, right? It's a terrible period of time. Anyone that lived through the great recession, it was a really bad, bad recession. It was, it was awful to be honest. And I was an advisor and a business owner through this. So I got hit double whammy. Um, but the, the thing is, I also realized, you know, by being a student looking at my successful clients, there were, there were clients that actually thrived during this period of time. And surprisingly, a couple of them were real estate investors. And during this time, I watched them start buying more and more real estate. And I'd, I'd sit down with them because they, you know, they were clients. So, and they would just tell me, yeah, this is the best time ever in my life to buy real estate. It's, I'm getting these, these apartments 40 cents on the dollar and people want to give them away. And I'm like, oh, all right. Well, I had, I had gotten out of that hard money loan because I, I finished the plaza and I rented out just enough to get a bank to take the, the mortgage. So I had a relationship with a bank. So I went to that banker, his name was Greg. He was a commercial lender. I said, hey, if I start buying some apartment buildings, do you guys think that you would lend? He said, absolutely. You know, we did your deal. Obviously you, you looked good on paper. We'll, we'll lend to you again. So I found my realtor, Anas, and she started finding me apartment buildings. And 2008 and nine, you know, from nine to 14, I did this. And it was a very easy time because people were losing everything. Overseas investors that owned these apartment buildings, they just wanted to dump them. And Anas was very good at finding them because she was she was Middle Eastern. So she had these, these investors that just needed to dump these properties. So I bought them and I, I highly leveraged myself. I literally, every penny I made in the Wall Street job, I moved over to the real estate. Everything I made in the stores, you know, after Christmas and back to school, went over to the real estate. And I would be working in, so think about this folks, like I'm, I'm working my Wall Street job, busting my butt there. I'm running my stores, which now at this point, I'm more working on the business, not in it. Cause I was forced when I took the wall street job, I was forced to not work in the business anymore, which is also very difficult. And I was working on it. So I had managers that, which were my friends that worked at the shops that actually ran the stores better than I ever did. But if I never took that leap out of the business because of necessity, I never would have understood that somebody could do a better job than I did because I was just tunnel visions. You know, when you're in your business, you see what you see and you don't let other people's creativity take over. Well, I did. And, and I witnessed that. So everything's going on at the same time. And now every free moment and weekends I'm spending at these apartment buildings renovating. And I, I don't know how to do this stuff. I'm learning as I go and renovating and I'd get a unit done. I'd rent it. And then I'd go on to the next unit. And I, I just did this for years. And I got up to 36 units by 2014. But you see, there always comes a point where learning also comes from failing. So mm -hmm. I hadn't really failed up to this point, come close, but now in 14, this is the moment where I really failed. You see, I just thought that you could just keep going with banks borrowing and they just keep giving you money because it was so easy up to this point. And I brought my 37th unit to the bank and they said, no, 
flat, flat out. Greg was like, no, we can't lend. Sorry. And I, I said, Greg, well, why? Well, your debt to income ratio doesn't support this. And I'm like, what, what is that? He said, well, for the amount of income and the amount of debt you have, we, we can't lend to you anymore. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have to freeze that line of credit because I had a line of credit that I used to renovate too now. And they froze that. Well, that was the death spiral. That was, you know, the kiss of death for me. I was just spiraled right down really fast because now I didn't have money to renovate houses. I was over leveraged. I was under knowledge and I didn't even understand what happened, but the bank shut me down. And that resulted in me then getting a little behind. So then they called one of the mortgages and then that was it. I ended up having to sell all 36 units. I entered one of the darkest periods of time in my life. Nothing mattered. I was playing the blame game. Like I hate to say today, everybody seems to like love to blame everything else. Our sitting president loves to blame everything else for everything that's going on. Well, that was me. I blamed everything else. I blamed the recession. I blamed bad business partners. I blamed everything for what was going on in my life. And I remember at this present point, what I had to do is sell off all these properties, but I had bought our, me and Larissa were together and I bought our dream house and I ended up having to sell that, which then me and Larissa split. I'm literally at the deepest form of what I would call depression or just like lowest point where you start thinking, should I just drive my truck off this cliff? And, um, yeah, I, I remember it got so bad that I sold in, in this, dream, this dream house, 171 Radcliffe, I sold the house, but I didn't just sell the house. I remember sitting in the bedroom, looking at you know the bed that my mom had bought, I'd had for a long time in the dressers, and I put them all on Craigslist and I sold those too. I sold everything. I sold, I had a couple Audis, I sold them all except for one, which was a beat up one. And I literally went through this cleansing period of just selling material things purely because I had to. Uh, and I packed a backpack and I went to Thailand of all places. At first I went to Singapore, then I went to Thailand for a month to clear my head, to figure out who I was. And I, I went around in a backpack, stayed at hostels, uh, saw some beautiful things and just tried to figure out what do I want? And when I got back, me and Larissa got back together, I, I started piecing together the things and this would have been 2014. And this is the very first time I ever went to a mastermind. I ponied up five grand that I didn't have to go to this mastermind because I just thought I have to be around successful people that can help me figure out where I'm going. And uh, that was a difficult thing because I didn't have the money. And that is how I got myself back. I started watching, studying, and intently categorizing it in, in almost like, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it journaling, but almost journaling what all these successful people did. Now, later I found out these people that acted successful really weren't. It's funny. There's a surgeon, Duck B, who's a dear friend of mine now. He was broke when he was at that mastermind, but he, to me, was the iconic multimillionaire because he just looked the part. He was a surgeon and all this. And I just, I looked and followed everything these successful business owners did. And I started seeing some weird things that didn't make sense to me. I was in Wall Street, remember? So I only knew the traditional financial world. And I didn't think there was anything else. When you're a high level financial advisor making hundreds of thousands of dollars, you don't think anyone can teach you something new. But when I got into these wealthy people's like circles, I realized that everything they did was the complete opposite of everything I'd been taught to teach and everything I'd been taught to sell my clients, complete opposite. What they did with money was the complete opposite of what I was doing with money. And it came to a, a head when I was at an event and I remember these two guys get up. I mean, you notice, like, I don't have a good memory, folks. Terrible memory. You notice these names, how they're just automatic recalling. There's only a couple of them, but these people are so pivotal in my life that I, I remember them. Mike and Greg, they got up on stage 
and they're talking about money and real estate. Mike had an A&E TV show and Greg was quote unquote the bank and both young guys. So I'm like, wow, look at these guys. And they start talking about how they did what they did, how they were funding real estate and how they were being the bank. Instead of just doing real estate, they were also lending money. And I remember Greg saying, I'm talking about a concept and he says the ultimate in real estate is being the bank to me now to everybody else in that room that probably went right over their head but to me i'm like oh my god all i need to do is flip enough houses to make enough money to then when i can reach the level where i can just become the bank well i was all wrong because it wasn't about the resources again it was about being resourceful and greg didn't have all the money he was lending he just figured these things out and I remember sitting in Salt Lake City shortly thereafter with Mike asking him questions like, how do you do this? And he talks to me about this thing, this thing that I knew or I thought I knew. And he's talking about like how he lends. And he's like, I'm like, well, how do you lend? He's like, well, I lend from my private bank. I'm like, oh, you dirty dog. You got yourself a bank. And all of a sudden he's like, no, 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 no. I just... I, I got this guy that helped me create my own private bank. I'm like, yeah, exactly, dude. Where is it? Let's go check this bank out. He didn't have a bank, but he had a bank. He, he did everything that a bank does, but he did it with what he called his private bank. And what I found out in this conversation that this private bank was not a bank at all. It was using a giant mutually owned insurance company to hold and house his capital. And then from that insurance company, he lent that money out. And then I found out what the product was, because remember, I'm an advisor, so I'm, what's the product? What is this product? I got to know this. And he tells me it's whole life insurance. And I'm like, no way, dude. Mm -mm, nope. Whole life doesn't work that way. You should be buying term, investing the difference. Some fool told you a lie. There's no way this works this way, Mike. And Mike, very successful, and today is probably worth a couple hundred million, leans into me, nonchalant, at Cheesecake Factory in Salt Lake City, <laughs> and says to me, Chris, if it doesn't work this way, how have I been doing it? And I sat back, ego destroyed, thinking, dude's got a point. Maybe I don't know. I said, teach me, Mike. And he said, I can't. You got to call this guy, Brent, who does it for me. So I called Brent immediately on the drive back to my friend Jack's house in Salt Lake. And I'm like, Brent, Brent, just met with Mike Baird and blah, blah, blah. And going off. And, and he's like, great. Have you seen the video? I'm like, what? I don't need to watch a video. I'm an advisor, man. I, I got 14 years in financial advisory. You're like, I know what this is. Like, come on, show me the way. He says, you got to watch the 90 minute video. So I, I pause. And then that Sunday, I took a big cup of coffee down to watch this stupid video that before he'll talk to me and I hit play. And that this 90 minute video is the, the biggest transition point in my life because I saw what the wealthiest families in history have done and have always done. And I saw how they did it. I saw how they used a vehicle that I always thought did one thing. They used it in a completely different way. And I saw how it worked. And it was, it was kind of like the equivalent of when you, you find God. To me, it was that equivalence. Nothing was ever the same. First off, I, I lost full faith in Wall Street. My job as an advisor took a different turn. I just, I just stabilized. I, I, I just did just the minimum to figure this stuff out as I learned from Brent. And I, I became one of Brent's, you know, he mentored me, not, not in a mentoring capacity, but I became a client and I went to all the places where he spoke. I, I, I watched him speak over and over to try to get these little things to figure them out. And I started learning it, but I didn't just learn it. I applied it. I took everything he taught 
and I put the little money I did into this, this banking policy and I moved that money and I made that money go to work for me. And first I started paying debt off and I started building slow, slow wealth by paying credit cards off. And then whatever I would give the credit cards, I would pay back to my banking system. And I just kept doing that. And then I started doing it with my first car, which was the first car I did that with was um, an Audi A8. It was a used one. So don't think, oh, wow, you had an A8. Well, I did because as an advisor, like you had to have that status thing. And I was a pretty high level advisor, but you know, I started doing this, but I'm getting too deep into this. This 90 minute video changed everything. In 2018, I left Wall Street out of nowhere. I just one day just, I just couldn't tell the lie anymore. I couldn't do what they wanted me to do anymore because I knew it wasn't right for the clients and I knew it wasn't what wealthy individuals did, but I knew that stepping out of that would mean I have to find income. So that income came in another dream. And we talked about this. I had, had gotten this idea from Mike and from Tarek and Christina that I wanted a TV show and me and my wife, you know, she's a pretty girl. I'm like, well, let's start flipping. We were flipping houses, but let's start doing it and filming it. And as a snowboarder, I had guys that were videographers. So they came in and they filmed it and edited it. And we made sizzle reels. We sent them off to A&E and HGTV and long story short, we eventually got a shot with HG and HGTV. Our show aired in 2018, the year I left Wall Street, because literally when, when we got the green light to air, I went to my, my brokerage, which you have a compliance department, and I said, hey, I need another OBA, outside business activity, and I need, I, I'm going to do a TV show. Oh, dude, they were like, nope, you're not doing this. Kid, you got to decide, are you going to be a financial advisor or a real estate guy, and you got to decide right now. No problem. Mike, the guy sitting right next to me, you want to buy my practice? What do we, and we negotiated. I sold my practice to him. He still cuts me checks every single month for that practice. And I was now a full-time real estate investor. And, and I did the hardest darn thing you can do in real estate, and that's flipping. And, and that's what I did using this infinite banking concept that I'd learned from Brent and Mike to kind of fund a lot of this stuff. And that's how we got the show. And the show didn't take, we aired eight times, or I'm sorry, six times, six times. And uh, HG was bought by Discovery and decided we weren't gonna make the cut and go on. And it was the biggest hit for me, but that was the moment when I realized what I had to do. Uh, tail between my legs, I'm sitting with Brent after he had just spoke at, at our RIA, cause we had a RIA here. And my wife kicks me under the table and says to me, she says, you need to help Brent. What do you mean? You want me to start going around speaking, teaching people what I've been doing with this? And she said, precisely. No, no, no. I got this idea. I'm going to do this thing, money school, and I'm going to teach, you know, self-directed IRAs and all this stuff. And she said, no, you're going to do this. Happy wife, happy life, boys. And then learn from that. And I did. And I, today I'm, we, you know, our company is one of the most well-known and the biggest, you know, companies that do this specialized thing called privatized banking. And I teach it around the country and a lot spun off of that. We've got a, a fintech company we we're talking about because of that book played play bigger, uh, yeah. where we basically created the equivalent of what a dating site would be like eHarmony for money. And, uh, yeah, I brought you right up to the current time. Sorry. It took so long, but there's a lot I unpacked there. No, you, you went through it, man. That, that ties everything together. I was wondering how we were going to go through all this stuff, but you're good, man. You, you brought it all, you brought it all there's to a culmination. Time doing it. I've just never done it like this, Scott. This is the first time I've ever told the story. Cause you, you kind of gave me the free pass in the beginning. Yeah. Don't, don't ask, you know, don't pause, just, just tell your story. And no one's ever let me do that. So I'd never have. So I just gave you, I'm not going to ever, first. I'm not going to ever ask the questions that I need to ask because the story's in your head. So I, I appreciate it. So I want to, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about now. Let's talk about present day. Let's 
I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash That's netsuite.com slash Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn Jobs, and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Talk about, I still need to better understand this this private banking system. So what do you what do you teach over? Like, am, if I don't want to misinterpret this, and, and I'm just coming at this for the first time ever. So when you work in this system, like you you're finding deals, you're acting as a bank, but you're you're funding the bank yourself or you're you're basically acting as like the broker and you're finding high net worth individuals and you're bringing it's them all, into deals. It's all my money. So think of it this way, right? We all have been taught to go out and work for money. We've yeah. put a monetary value on our hours and we do that. So for those those of you listening, some of you are watching, I'm holding a hundred dollar bill. You know, we, we make money. And and when we make money, most of the money goes out and gets spent on our living expenses. You know, if you mm-hmm. live in Toronto, all of it goes to your housing. Just kidding. But you <laughs> not, know, not, you make not this, a lie. Not, not a lie. Very true. Uh, we make this money and, you know, the smart ones, not all of them, but the smart ones save or follow. There's six laws to wealth. I'm writing a book on it. It'll be my fourth book uh, called the laws. of. It won't be called the laws of wealth, but it's about the laws of wealth. And law number one is you must keep 
or save one tenth of, of your money. Now I knew this for a long time, pay yourself first, a lot of different things. But when we save money, where do we save it? Well, in Wall Street, 401ks, bank accounts, money markets, brokerage accounts, all the different things that we sold. But what I found out is none of the wealthy individuals started with their money there. They changed one thing and they changed where their savings went first. And the, the wealthiest, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the, I could go on for days, the Ray Crocs, the Walt Disney's, they all did this, okay? And right up to the sitting president today, love him or hate him, he does this as well. And they just change where their money goes. They don't trust banks and banks are the only ones that make money when you deposit money there. They even give you a sucker, test this, in Florida you have these. Go to any bank in Florida and get, you know, make a deposit and grab a sucker. There's not a bank in this country that doesn't give away dumb, dumb suckers. They're telling you something. So I changed where my money was saved and I put my money into these. Now, and the other thing too, remember I said it was a whole life. Instantly people go to negative thoughts because regular whole life is not what I'm talking about. This, these are specially designed and engineered contracts, incredibly specialized. There's only a couple giant mutually owned insurance companies that do this, but we create this this policy that serves and acts like a bank account. So I take the money that I would normally save and I just change where it goes. So I take it from my left hand or my right hand, I give it to my left hand, which is my policy. And I put it into this specially designed whole life. Now, the next phase, when you make money and you save money, what, what is the next thing you do? Well, you buy things, right? Mm -hmm. People buy cars. When you buy a car, you either lease it, you pay cash for it, or you finance it. And when you finance it, you make monthly checks to somebody else's bank. Okay, whatever your bank is, that's who you're paying. And then when you finance other things, dirt bikes or boats or anything, you, you make payments. We've been conditioned by the system to give up control of all of our money for the things that we want. This concept that I learned from Mike and Brent is a, is a banking concept, but it's now I've got the money in the policy. Now there's one thing, the policy pays me a guaranteed interest rate plus dividends. To, by today's numbers, it's about five to six percent, okay, which is way better than what a bank pays you. And, and of that five to six percent, three to three point two five percent, depending on the company, is guaranteed forever. Okay, so I'm earning a pretty good return on my money. But the coolest part is, is now it doesn't matter what I'm earning on my money. I need to make that money go to work because law number two is make your money work for you. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out where can I make that money go to work? Now, I remember back in my story, when I first started this, I had lots of debt. And if you think of a credit card, if any of you have a credit card, your credit card probably charges you north of 20% interest. Mm -hmm. And every month you're making a monthly payment of which most of that goes to interest. Have you ever thought about what, you know, and then when you're thinking about investing money in Wall Street or in the markets, you're like, oh man, I wish I could make a 20% return. Ding, ding, ding you're giving 20% away to the credit card. So why don't we start there? This is what Brent taught me. So I took the money that I saved and instead of investing it, I took it and I then paid off credit cards, lowest balance to highest balance. And I'd pay off a visa. And if I was paying visa hundred bucks, I took that hundred bucks I was paying visa and I set up an automatic transfer or bill pay that paid back to my policy. Now remember, it's a specially designed and engineered whole life, but I call it my bank. So now that hundred I used to give away, now, I pay it back to my policy. Here's the kicker, okay? That doesn't sound too sexy and it's really not, but there's one thing that I left out that's critical and this is why the wealthy families do this. Let's just say, I'm, I'm, let's call it a thousand bucks that I owed Visa. So I had to have a thousand bucks in my policy in order to pay Visa off for a thousand. We all understand that. You can't make money out of thin air. But when I had a thousand in my policy and I took that thousand out to pay off Visa, I took a loan against my policy, much like I would take a loan from a bank. I took a loan against my policy. But here's the unique thing. 
if I had $1,000 in my policy paying me 6% and I take a $1,000 loan out of my policy, how much money, Scott, is left in my policy? I started with 1000 and I took 1000 out. How much is left? If it's a loan, there's still 1000 in your policy. Ah, smart. Now, a lot of people that are listening to this would think zero. Well, you had 1000 you took 1000 it's zero. The insurance company never touched my 1000 bucks. They made me a loan that was collateralized by my $1,000, but the loan is a loan that never needs to be paid back. Now, this is the thing that most people, and when I heard this, I'm like, that can't ever happen. That sounds too good to be true. The loan they gave me was a loan against my death benefit. The insurance company promises to pay a guaranteed interest rate on my money that's in there, plus they promise to pay a death benefit the day I die. So the insurance company will allow me to use the death benefit up to the amount that I can collateralize with my cash value, which was a thousand bucks in this case. So the thousand dollars they gave me was the insurance company just saying, hey, here's a thousand dollars of your death benefit today, and we'll charge you an interest rate on that loan, but you don't ever have to pay it back because when someday when you graduate, and, and die, that's a nice way of saying die. When you die, we're gonna we're just gonna true up then. We're gonna subtract the thousand from your death benefit that you have and we're good, we're made whole. But if you hear what I just said, very, let's just very do some math. Yeah. Isn't it though, isn't it fascinating? It it's so simple, it but nobody teaches this and I'll tell you why nobody ever has heard of this uh, from an advisor standpoint. Now let's just let's just use, use simple math. First year, let's say I got a thousand in there and I need a thousand to pay off Visa. I'm making 6% on my thousand with dividend and to borrow that money, let's just say the insurance company charges me four. What is six minus four? Two. Two, right? Yeah. It's a 2% spread. When you think about a bank, when you put money into a traditional bank as a deposit, does the bank put your money in that vault like they want you to believe? No. What do they do with they your invest money? Invest it. They lend it out. That, that, yeah. Those cubicles around the outside, they're lending your money out. So if they're paying you 1% on your deposits you leave in the bank, are they lending it out more than 1%? darn right they are they're making a spread so i'm doing the same thing with this policy i'm making six and i'm borrowing it at four i'm making a two percent spread and then i pay off visa i paid visa 100 bucks a month which was all interest at 20 percent. and now instead of just saying oh visa's gone i'm done no i treat my money the same way i would treat you know the bank's money and instead of paying visa i just changed the name on the check the $100 I gave to Visa, I just write that check back to my policy, paying my policy loan back, which means now I'm making, I just made money twice. Did anyone catch that? I just showed you how to make money two times instead of one time. I made a spread on my policy between the six and the four, plus I took back the 20% that I was giving away to Visa. So as long as everybody understands that, let's go round two. So I did this for years and I paid off all my credit cards from lowest balance to highest. So now I'm recapturing all the money I used to give away. So I'm starting to feel like I got some real wealth because I was just giving all my money away and now I'm keeping it all. So my policy is now maturing and getting more and more money. Now remember my money through this whole process never left. So there's a thing called compound interest that I'm benefiting from. Every year I'm compounding on a higher amount and a higher amount and a higher amount. So every year without me working any harder or any longer or doing anything different in my life, my spread between what I'm making and what I'm paying goes up automatically because I'm compounding on a higher amount. So that spread just naturally mathematics, my spread gets bigger and bigger. So instead of making a 2% spread five years later, maybe I'm making a 7% spread another five years. Maybe I'm making a 10% spread folks. It's just math. Listen, I'm not telling you anything crazy complicated, but eventually all the debts are paid off, but we all buy cars, right? Now, most people finance their cars like I used to. Well, now I finance my cars, but I finance them with my bank. I take a loan from my bank 
the policy and I buy the car cash. But I then ask the dealer, whoever I buy the car from, how much would this car be if I were to finance it through your finance company? 600 a month, great. I then write a check for 600 a month back to my policy. Today, it's, it's evolved a lot from there. I lend money out at 12% through our fintech company called Private Money Club. So I take loans from my policy. I lend it out to uh, you know, uh, good investors that are buying real estate, and I charge them 12. So now do the same math. Remember, my policies are mature now. I'm making a heck of a nice spread. Let's say it's 5 to 10%, and I'm lending it out at 12 when, when most people, Scott, lend money out, they make whatever the interest is they're charging, right? 12%. I'm making 12 plus my spread. I'm making mm -hmm. money twice, and I'm doing nothing different than everybody else. I've been doing this now for a long time. This is what I teach, and I teach it. And the reason no one knows about it, because it's still like one of the biggest secrets of the wealthy, is if I was an advisor and I was to design one of these policies for my clients, I would have to give up 90% of my commission. How many advisors want to take a pay cut of 90%? I'll give you the answer. Zero. None. Yeah. <laughs> That's None. an easy, easy yeah, number I to have. come to. Yeah. I wouldn't have. The insurance companies, like in the early years, I worked for a company called New York Life, and then I worked for their investment division called Eagle Strategies. But they never taught us this, but yet they knew all about it. But they didn't teach us because they don't want us. In order for the policy to work the way I explained it, where I put a, you know, I put a thousand bucks in and I have almost all of that money to use immediately in the next 30 days, requires the advisor or the person building the plan, who, who is us today, to take a 90% reduction in commission. So where a normal whole life at, let's just use 10 grand, right, for simple math, if somebody put 10 grand into a regular off-the-shelf whole life with their advisor or agent, that advisor will make a minimum of $5,500. That's a good day in the office, isn't it? So you put 10 grand into a regular whole life, that advisor just made a pay of 5,500. Now flip the script. I designed the policy through our company to do what I just explained. My commission is $387. See the difference? Would an advisor rather make 5,500 or 387? Duh, right? But of in course, order for this yeah. to work the way that Brent and Mike and all these guys use it, it has to be built that way. Otherwise, it's always somebody's got to give for somebody else to get. And the give has to come from us to design the policies the right way. This is why nobody knows about this. And most people just think it's too good to be true. And and when you it's incredible. Now, the only thing that I want to understand is if you're if you're if you're getting paid out on your death benefit early, which is really the, the loan that you're taking out, is there a cap on that when you when you create these policies? Like if you put a if you put a million dollars in and you're like, I want to take a million dollars out and I want to leverage, that's my loan, the million dollars. Now I'm making interest and I'm making dividends on that million dollars. It's resting my account. No, is that I, too I much? I have a real estate investor right there... now that we're doing. He's putting $4 million in and then each year he's going to he's gonna have the ability to put 300000 in because we build the plans any way the client wants. He just he had a big real estate uh, project that he just sold in Colorado. So he had $4 bucks sitting in a bank account. He's moving that money over into the policy. We call that a mm -hmm. dump in. So that money's going to earn 6%. And then each year, he, he's going to put additional money into the policy. And I said, how much do you want to have the ability to put in? We went around and around. And he said, well, I think 300. And his concern was in real estate, his income changes. It fluctuates. So if he commits to 300, he was concerned that uh, what if I don't have 300 one year? His minimum is 120. So his min and his max, his floor and his ceiling, is 60%. 300 is his max. He can never put a penny more than 300 in because of IRS rules. And he can never put in for the first 10 years less than 120. And he was fine with that. So no matter how the client wants it built, we there's no one policy design that we do that is the same. It's just for the client's needs.
and then the the actual so and then when you want to take out take out money when you want to loan against that um are there underwriting issues that could screw you that yeah, would stop no, you from no, getting the loan no like what's the things that people so when you need money you literally if we were doing like a zoom i could show you you log into the account you answer four questions is this a part of a divorce decree uh is this money going outside the united states and then you know it's basically just looking for money laundering answer those four then the next screen comes up and says where do you want the money sent do you want a check or do you want to attach a bank account so i have two bank accounts to chat attach my operating account and my segregated account i click which one i want i click a button a lot of times it's the next day but up to 36 hours later the money's in your bank account just like that no questions no no one cares and can I ask, like, why does Whole Life Always do has. this? Um, like, what's the benefit? A couple of reasons. Number one, Whole Life is the the vehicle that is used by the banks. So, if you really, folks, and a lot of you are still like saying, "No way, this works this way." Okay, well, here I'll prove that it does. Banks and traditional banks are the number one purchasers of Whole Life <laughs> in the world. Google it. Okay, Google B O L I. It stands for Bank Owned Life Insurance, and it'll blow your mind. The top five banks in the United States as of 2020 had 70, I might get this off a little bit, $76 billion in whole life insurance. If you look at all the banks in the, in the country as of 2020, I think it was uh, 191 billion. I mean, you guys can look it up. It's on the, just go to the FDIC website. It'll pop right up. Hundreds of pages will come up of how much banks do. So banks are the ones using this. They use their tier one capital to buy whole life. Why? Because it's guaranteed and because they can use the money. Banks understand compound interest better than anybody. So, of course, they put our deposit money, their tier one capital, into these policies. And then they take the money out of the policies and they do all the things we do. So this is no secret. So they're doing the same it's things that you're doing. It's maybe bigger scale. Yeah. They might be buying buildings or making loans with that money or funding pension plans or deferred compensation plans. But the thing is, a bank can't buy a whole life insurance policy. A bank needs a body to insure because a bank's an entity. So... If you ever walk into a bank, and this is in Canada too, because Canada, this works in Canada, just so you know. There's there's guys in Toronto we work with, uh, Ascendant Financial, and there's another guy that, that do this big in, in Canada. But all banks, if you ever walk into one, you will notice there's an awful lot of vice presidents. And nobody really thinks about it, but like, why does a bank need so many darn vice presidents? I'll give you the exact reason why. A bank needs a body to insure for all this money they're putting into these whole lives. So the only insurable body that they can do is somebody that they have an insurable interest in, an executive, okay? An executive qualifies as an insurable interest for an entity. So the entity, the bank, basically promotes them to a vice president, making them an executive of the bank, meaning now to the insurance company, if they lose that vice president, if that vice president were to get hit by a bus walking across the street, the bank has a suffer, they're gonna suffer a loss. So they can insure that body. So now they just promote everybody to a vice president so they can buy policies on these vice presidents. And for that, the vice president gets a fully paid up life insurance policy, usually 50 to 100 grand. But the bank's probably buying a $3 million policy on their life. But they, they basically buy the policy on the vice president. They give the vice president a paid up insurance policy, plus usually a deferred compensation, which is funded by the policy. And then when that employee dies, the bank's made 100% whole. The bank got to use all of the money the entire time and earn interest and dividends on that money uninterrupted every year that employee was there and up to the day that they die. Now you see why I had such a hard time 
wanting to keep pushing stocks and bonds and annuities and bullshit products in Wall Street when I just saw the light of what the wealthy families do. do. For and, and then there's a lot more to what the wealthy families do. This isn't the only thing. This is just, this is the foundation. This is where their money starts. From there, they, they do a lot of private lending. They, they invest in private companies. They start companies. They do all the things that you know, we've been talking about the whole time, but their money doesn't sit where everybody else's money is because the, the wealthy families and the banks want to be in control of their money. Every one of us, including everybody listening right now, you've been trained your whole life. You don't even know this to give up control of your money. You put your money in the bank. And the bank then makes your money go to work for you instead of you making it work for you. You put money in retirement plans, 401ks, where who's in control? Not you until 59 and a half. You can't use that money. An opportunity comes across your desk. Can you just go to your 401k and take all the money out? Not without penalties and in taxes? No. You've been taught to give up control, folks. Wake up. This is what I realized. And I just couldn't do it anymore. Thank God like I had that that exit and, and I got huh. out of it. And this is what I teach. And you watch some of my YouTube videos, which I put content up on YouTube every day. But, you know, I'm also, I can't call myself an economist, but I am literally a nerd. I study economics probably more than anyone would ever want to. I understand cycles and patterns and what happens in the markets. And I could pretty much predict to you and tell you exactly what's coming in the next year or two years because of, you know, history and what I know of economics. And you wouldn't like it if I told you. So just, probably skip that. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Manscaped. Now, Manscaped has spent two years designing the most comfortable boxer briefs out there. Sleek, soft, comfortable, and flexible. The brand new boxers 2.0 from Manscaped are the most comfortable boxers I've ever worn. They are the global leaders in below-the-waist grooming. They have the Lawnmower 4.0. Now they have the Boxers 2.0. If you want to check these out for 20% off plus free shipping, use our code 20success at manscaped.com. Here's a little bit more about the boxers. They are a game changer. The micro modal fabric is buttery soft and breathable. It keeps everything cool. Walk, run, strut. These moisture wicking boxers breathe without breaking a sweat. The tagless waistbands hug your body without digging in and it lays flat against your skin to reduce chafing. Front fly opens, giving easy access and makes bathroom breaks quick and efficient. You can even choose from arrangement of designs and colors and sizes ranging from small to 3XL. Now, get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20success at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20success at manscaped.com. No, I think it's interesting too. So I would you, do if you want to go time, into that? Yeah. It's up to you. We can go into because I think it's also it's up to you. So I would okay. So let's so that so yeah. we just went through a lot. I think this is. I think people have to wrap their. I'm just. I have to wrap my head around this a little bit. I probably have to. Where do people go yeah. to learn more about this? Because I find this incredibly fascinating. And also, like you teach us over, what are the, what are the negatives? What are the let's downsides? Hit, what are the, the, the red negatives. flags? Where there are the are places some. people so get screwed? First and foremost, you have to be saving money for this to work. So that that excludes some people. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, like this isn't going to help. I can't. I can't make money grow on trees for you. So you have to be saving money. Secondarily, when you put the money into the policies, you're not going to have access to 100% of it in the first year, maybe even two years, depending on how it's funded. So there's a period of time of a few years where 
every dollar you put in, you can't use every dollar. It's usually about 90%. So if you put 1,000 in, you can use 900. If you can't live with that, this isn't going to work for you. And secondarily, you have to be able to fund this for at least a 10-year period at some level, right? Like maybe you want to do 500 a month or 1,000 a month. That's your max. You have to be able to do at least $400 a month if you want to put 1,000 in. So there's a minimum savings level that you have to be able to put into these in order for this operation to work. Those are the biggest negatives. And, and you know, life insurance companies aren't nonprofits. They, there's a cost for the insurance, but all the numbers boil those out. We, you'll never pay us a, a fee for designing the plans. We get paid by the insurance company. I already told you, $387 per $10,000 of deposits somebody puts in. So that's how we're compensated. And even though that's a small amount, we do this right now. We have about 4,800 clients. So you guys can do the math. It's it's a good day in the office. Um, but you know, in the beginning, it sucked because as you were building. It was, it was like being broke. It was like starting over again because you're just doing these tiny little nickels and pennies, but we had to see the big picture, the scale. So those are the negatives is, you know, you have to save. You're not going to be able to use 100% of your money. There are costs for the insurance portion of the contract. So there's no free lunch out there, folks. I'm not sitting here saying that this doesn't have a cost to it. It certainly does. But when you look at the numbers, the cost is only an issue in the absence of value. If the value isn't enough for you, don't do it. You don't, this isn't for everybody. So those are the negatives to it. Okay, very good. Because I guess, you know, if I'm just thinking about the, if I'm trying to figure out, do I put my money in this? You're looking at, you're still looking at the 6% and you're still looking at the dividends and you're just trying to balance it out against the cost. And it's a pretty right easy calculation time. as to There's whether or not. There's never ever going to be a time that the cost it's, isn't going to be outweighed by the value you get in terms of what your, your returns are. Never can't happen unless you're like 70 years old okay. and not in good health then this just isn't going to work for you then you got to do what the bank does and borrow a life um and, and the other thing too is like how do you learn more because this is a lot and you know it's too much actually but if people want to learn you do the same thing i did you go to my website a video thing will pop up for that same 90 minute video i watched in 2014 and you watch the video and but we've we've got other videos now that are shorter if you just can't do 90 minutes but we broke it down to a 10-part video series but the 90 minute video is what you want I swear to god it'll change your life but you got to first go to the website and you got to watch the video if you're not willing to do that well then i don't have 90 minutes to help you that's simple how it is very good. Okay. Um, uh, let, let's do a little bit. Let's just do a little bit because you're so entrenched and in, and uh, and you're always studying and researching finance and economics. Um, just talk to me about because uh, I, I know that's going to be interesting for people that are already listening to this episode. So talk to me about. Uh, let's talk about recession. Let's talk about inflation. Um, okay. I'm going to leave it Super to easy. you. Where do you think I'll we're tell going you exactly and what's where happened? We're going, and I just can't tell you when because there's not person on earth that can time the markets. But I'll tell you where we're going. We are in the brink and in the midst of seeing what I would call the perfect storm. Okay, One of the, the biggest financial storms we're going to see in our lifetimes. I think it will be the equivalent or worse than the Great Depression, but that's just my speculation based on the things I see. But let's just, you know, a lot of you are like, oh yeah, no, you know, that's not what's going to happen. Okay, so let me, let me quantify that in big words that we use in the, the space. Here's why. You all know we're in an inflationary period, and that's because they printed $5 trillion during the pandemic. But you see, the printing press started back in, well, before 2008, but we'll start at 2008, and they never stopped. So they printed to the tune of $9 trillion. Now, the U.S. government doesn't print money, okay? The U.S. government it has you know, a relationship with a separate entity called the Federal Reserve. 
I call it the devil, but you can call it whatever you want after you read the creature from Jekyll Island. But they have the Federal Reserve, which prints money. And when the Fed prints money, it they can print as much as they want. It's an unlimited amount. They, they don't just hand it out. They exchange it. Okay, They will trade the dollars that they print out of thin air for debt. The U.S. government and many other countries give the Fed debt in the form in, these, in this country. It's called treasury bonds. So the Fed holds on their balance sheet all these treasury bonds. Right now, it's about, give or take, $8.9 trillion in U.S. debt that the Federal Reserve has on their balance sheet. And then we'll just use the $5 trillion they just printed, $5.1 trillion. That money gets distributed into the economy. Much of it finds its way into the capital markets, which is Wall Street. Okay, that's ballooning stock prices, ballooning assets, because there's lots of money going in there. You guys all wonder why the stock market's been so good since the pandemic? I just gave you the answer. Five trillion dollars or five trillion reasons why. Not only that, the U.S. government then stimulated the economy, which was brought down because they shut it down, Canada for longer than the U.S. They shut it down, so they then handed out checks, stimulus checks, EDIL loans to businesses at 3%, PPP loans, okay? completely forgiven if you had employees. And they stimulated the economy to the point where literally they overstimulated it. They overstimulated it because they, they got a gridlock where supply and demand didn't match up. People had more demand than they did supply. Hence, all the ports, all the, the backlogs. People wanted goods and services. They wanted real estate because for years, like real estate pretty much halted. Then all of a sudden, it just opened up and everybody wanted it. But not only that, the thing that most people won't see, because everybody understands that, that drives inflation. Inflation is nothing more than a hidden tax. When the government or when the Fed prints money and exchanges it to the U.S. government, that is an inflationary thing because you're making money out of, out of thin air. So the only thing that printing money does is it devalues your dollars. If you look at 1913 straight through to, and I can only go to 2019, I hate to see where it's at today, but 1913 to 2019. In 1913, $100 was, had a purchasing power of $100. In 2019, that same $100 has a purchasing power of $3.87. It's far less today. So every time they print money, it's inflationary. Inflation is a hidden tax, and all it does is devalues your dollar, making it, you see it as things get more expensive. Things aren't really getting more expensive. Your dollar's buying less. That's all it is, folks. Inflation is not the fact that things get more expensive. That's, that's how they explain it because it's easy for you to articulate the price of the, the fuel, the price of health, orange juice or milk or anything you buy. It's all expensive. It's not expensive. It's just your dollars are buying less because they printed more of them. It's so easy to understand. So now that we've got this crazy inflationary problem, 8.5%, which is a big problem, Okay, and it's rising and rising because they printed too much money. The Fed has to slow this down. So if you pay attention, you watch the news, you've seen this. It's, I'm not the, the person bringing this to you, but they are doing three things. The Federal Reserve, first off, has announced they're going to raise interest rates seven times 2022. They've already done it once, quarter percent. Quarter percent raise in interest rates spun mortgage rates out of control. We went from last year being able to get a 30-year mortgage for around 3%. How much is it right now? Look it up, folks. Google it. 30-year fixed mortgage over 6%. And that's just a 25 basis point increase in rates. They're going to do six more to slow this thing down. 
The next one will be 50 basis points. What's that going to do? It's going to make everything even more expensive. Your car payment's going to get to be more. If you buy a house, it's going to be a lot more. If your credit cards are going to be more, your lines of credit are going to be more. Everything is going to get more. They want it to be that way because they want to slow the growth down to curb this inflation. Seven times. You tell me, what will this look like at the end of 2022 if they raise rates seven times? And let's just say they do it between 25 basis points and half a percent. You're going to see rates over 7%. We haven't seen that in a long time, folks. That's going to slow this machine way down. It's going to hit Wall Street straight in the middle groin section like a swift kick to a man's genitals. Okay, It's going to hurt. It's going to slow real estate down big because people that could afford the median home price of $387,000 now can't. They can afford $250,000. Folks, you're not doing the math right. So that's the first one, but that's not the big one. That's not going to send us into a deep recession, but the next one will. The Fed has also announced that they're going to do something that they've done in history roughly about seven times, and they are going to unwind the balance sheet. So remember I told you the Fed on their balance sheet has $8.9 trillion worth of debt, U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And they're going to start selling those into the open market. Google it, folks. Look at it. Powell said $95 billion a month starting in May is what the Fed's going to do. They're going to start selling $95 billion worth of those bonds to the tune of uh, rough, roughly estimating about $3 trillion of the $5 trillion they printed. Now, Scott, you ever you ever watch the movie Spaceballs? Awesome, yeah. awesome flick. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember the part where Helmet and the bad guys pull their big ship up to that planet, whatever it was called, it was Earth, but they pull it up to Earth and then it converts into a maid. And remember like the, the Earth opens and they put the vacuum cleaner yeah. on Earth and they start sucking the air out. If the Fed sells $95 yes, billion yep. dollars a month or $3 trillion into the open markets, the vacuum cleaner scenario I just gave you is exactly what the Fed's doing. They printed $5 trillion and now they're going to take $3 trillion back out. Seven times in history, give or take, is how many times the Fed's done this. Every single time they've attempted to do this, you hear it as the soft landing or whatever, every time they've attempted to do this in history has resulted in a deep recession, recession except for one time. Third thing, okay, and this is, this is the, we'll call it the Iron Cross or the Telltale. Two weeks ago, I believe today, on the news, you would have saw something called the inverted yield curve which means those treasury bonds, there's different durations. There's five-year, 30-year, two-year, 10-year. The five and the 30, which if you buy a five-year bond, that means in five years from today, the U.S. government pays you back all your money, guaranteed, okay? If you buy a 30-year bond, that means the U.S. government pays you back in 30 years all your money, guaranteed. And in the, meeting, in the middle of that, they pay interest on that money each year. So wouldn't it make logical sense that if you only did a bond, an IOU with the U.S. government for five years, they'd pay a higher interest rate or they would pay you a lower interest rate on that five-year duration than they would pay you on a 30-year. Because 30-year, you're going way into the future. They're going to pay you more interest, right? Well, right now, the five pays more than the 30. It's called an inverted yield curve. The reason that is is that the big money in the industry, the insurance companies, the hedge funds, the Wall Street people, they're buying 30-year bonds, a lot of them, driving the yield down because they know something's coming. Then the real one happened, the two and the 10. Same idea, right? Two-year, 10-year. They inverted. So you now can make more interest on a two-year treasury bond than you can on a 10-year treasury bond? That makes no bloody sense. Exactly. Every time this has happened in history, I think there's 22 times it's happened 
and I don't know the math, but I can go from like 1971 or 1974 on. It's happened seven times out of seven times. Every time except for one has resulted in a deep recession. So now you just take history and you look at one other telltale sign. Sorry, I'm giving you one bonus one. And this is something that Ray Dalio talks about. You all should watch a video on YouTube called The Economic Machine. Okay, it's Ray Dalio's. Just go into Google, type in The Economic Machine. It will explain this. There are cycles in markets and there are cycles in the debt markets, which are the biggest part of the economy. Right now, there's a short-term debt cycle, which is why you've seen recessions in your life. It's usually five to seven years. Every five to seven years, we have a rise and a fall, you know, like, like the Great Recession, like that comp. But every 50 to 75 years, there is another cycle, which most of us have never seen in our lifetime. Actually, all of us watching this probably have never seen a long-term debt cycle. You would have had, had to have lived through the Great Depression. A long-term debt cycle is 50 to 75 years. If you do the math, 1933 or 34, wherever you want to count, right straight through to today. Where are we? Far enough. We are at the end of a long-term debt cycle. We are already on the way back down. You just haven't seen it yet because the government you know, had a printing press that they could keep manipulating this through modern monetary theory. Folks, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you take all this data, you look at history, and you plot it out. Mm -hmm. We are on a collision course for one of the biggest most tragic financial like episodes where we're probably going to see in our lifetimes. So now that I've scared the crap out of all of you, I got some good news. If you know that this is coming, we just don't know when all you need to do is prepare. And if you prepare for this thing, it won't be a tragic event. It won't be a bad event. It will be single handedly the biggest, largest opportunity of your lifetime. You just got to get ready for it. And, I, and that's what I teach, Scott. Like, yes, I teach the infinite banking concept. Yes, I teach private lending and all those good things that the wealthy do. But the one thing I will tell you that I am doing is sounding the warning bells, just like, just like Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater Capital, the largest hedge fund in the world, just like Warren Buffett silently but openly, just like so many of these other guys out there that are telling you what's coming, the economists, the Harry Dents, the, the Jim Rickards, the gosh, all of them are saying the same darn thing, but everybody's ignoring it because you're chasing short-term gains. Law number four of wealth. When you seek unrealistic returns, your money will flee you every time. It's just a matter of time. So don't play this. Don't play with this thing. I'm telling you, this, this storm that's coming, this beast will tear you apart, will tear your family's finances apart if you play the game. Don't be in Wall Street right now. And if you are, be very tactical. And I hope you know, like, and understand what you're doing. And that's what everybody should do. They should, law number three, protect your wealth. You should only invest in things you know, like, and understand. And make sure today you really understand them. And make sure you're playing the short game versus the long game. Because the long game is going to be a dangerous one if you don't have the time horizon or the, the risk tolerance to handle a 30 40 or 50% decline in your investment portfolio. There, I told it. I said it. Get ready. What about... No, dude, it's, it's awesome. What about people that are are not as highly leveraged, but the average person that's just working the job and trying to make ends meet. What is that? So let's like look at the different things that could impact someone's life. So you have their job, you have their investment in maybe traditional vehicles, you have investment in real estate, you have investment in now crypto and DeFi. 
all those different people, how does it affect? Well, you gave me them? a lot of different people. It'll affect each one different. The average person working a nine to five, get, you know, taking a paycheck, you know, making things work. You know, the biggest risk they have if they don't have much money in the markets and too many assets to worry about, very little impact. I mean, the biggest risk would be they could lose their job because the company they work for might not make it through the next economic recession, or they might lay people off. So you might be part of a layoff or lose your job. Very little impact. Usually. I don't mean to classify it, but usually like the, the lower income earners or, you know, the lower class, so to say, are, are little affected outside of that in terms of economic recessions. The middle class, as always, is the one that's going to be hit the hardest. The middle class that has money in, in 401ks, has got some money in investments outside, maybe owns a small crypto portfolio, maybe has one or two rentals. They're going to be devastated because it's going to hit all those assets. Your real estate will be fine. I think real estate is the greatest investment on earth. But you have to understand if you're doing real estate and you're doing it for the speculative upside that you've been seeing for the last decade of your, the price of your house going up and up and up, that will stop. I just told you why. That's going to come back down. No big deal if you're renting it and you're just going to rent it straight through this. But if you have a liquidity or an exit strategy inside the next five years, it's game over for you. You're not going to make it and you're not going to sell your house for anywhere close to what you paid for it if you bought it in the last couple of years. You just won't. I'm sorry. So plan on a long-term rental strategy and you'll be just fine. Matter of fact, like I told you, remember back in the Great Recession, those clients of mine that were making money hand over fist, they were in real estate. They were long-term buy and hold guys. They weren't the flippers. The flippers went out of business. The, the flippers that made a lot of money are the ones that started flipping into the recession as it went down. They did really well. They all became multi-multi-millionaires like Mike and Greg did. Um, and then, you know, crypto is an interesting thing. And, and I'm not a crypto expert, but I surround myself around crypto experts for sure. I like crypto. I think crypto is going to be around for, and specifically, let me quantify that, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Let's let's be very specific. Maybe XRP and, and Cardano and yeah. a few others, but <clears throat> Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're not going anywhere. But they're they're very tied to the market. So if the stock market crashes, crypto will also crash with it. it. It Just look at the charts, folks. I'm a chartist, right? I, I study this stuff. I know how to read it. Like when the stock market goes down, I will tell you crypto goes down. And if I looked right now, I could show you, oh, market's down, crypto, you know, my Bitcoin account's down. But I'm playing Bitcoin short term right now and I'm doing well. I'm trading off different levels. Like it just dropped down to 38. I bought a, a nice little chunk and I'm looking to exit it. About, I almost got rid of it yesterday, but I missed the 43. My, my target's 44. I'll get out probably 42 to 44. And then I'll wait for it to go back down and I'll buy it again. And some people are like, oh, that's so stupid. Really? Because I've been doing quite well. Because I bought it when it went down to 28. I sold it when it got to 44 last time. Then it came back down to 30. It's, it's a fun little easy game. It takes maybe a minute a day for me to do that. But there's a lot of people playing the long game in, in Bitcoin. They're buying it to hold for the long haul. I will tell you, you will probably make a lot of money doing that. If and only if you don't allow investor sentiment, your inner voice, fear, get in the way. Because I'm going to promise you, if you bought Bitcoin at 50, 60, 40, it's going way lower. And when it goes way lower, just shut your eyes. Actually, delete the app. Just delete the app so that you can't do anything. This is the best advice I could give you. Delete Smart. the app. If you got Coinbase, delete it and keep your position and just hold it. Because in five, 10 years, Bitcoin will probably be worth a lot if they can maintain the finite amount. Now, I know China's trying to beat that and beat the code, but who knows? Hopefully, it's just like the book uh, creating, uh, creating Bitcoin. I don't know. I read a book about it, but hopefully it can't be beat and there's always a finite amount. I think crypto is definitely the wave of the future, blockchain specifically. So my bet is on Ethereum more than any yeah. other one. 
because of it, what it, the problem it solves. And um, I think the biggest risk you're going to see in the next year or two years that's already happening is the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve and central banks going to a digital currency. The U.S. dollar is dead. They're, they're crushing it right now. They're killing it. Eventually, the U.S. dollar will give way to a digital currency. It's already being enacted in China and other parts of the country. That digital currency, just so you know, will not be Bitcoin. I, I laugh at people when they think, oh, yeah, Bitcoin will be the next. No way. They will, they will never, ever adopt a decentralized currency. It will be a centralized currency that they control wholeheartedly, and you won't want it. But they're going to convince you to trade in your Bitcoin, just like they convinced people back in the 70s and back in the, the 30s to trade in their gold for U.S. dollars. How was, how'd that work out? Not so good. So don't do it. If How did they convince it illegal, people? Because made I know when they switch up Made it so that you couldn't hold gold, that you couldn't exchange gold. You couldn't use gold as a means of exchange. Like they pretty much made it illegal in a roundabout way. I mean, there's more to that story, but that's the simplest explanation. But gold still mm -hmm. is around. Interesting. I mean, gold yeah, still is a store of value. Gold still is a good investment long term. And it's in you know do or die times. If we ever needed it, it can be one of the few things that you could use as a means of exchange. Clip corners of it, buy bullion. I'm not a big I'm not big into the collectible coins, but I think there's some merit to those. I think like just start buying a little bit. I mean, every week, I'm sorry, every month I buy, I have a subscription to a place called 7K and I buy bullion. Um, I'm not a huge gold bug. I mean, I'm I just I move my money. That's what I do. My money's always out working for me, constantly moving in and out. That's how I beat inflation. That's how I make the majority of the money I make. But gold is just a nice little side store of wealth. No more than 10% of my wealth will ever be in gold, silver, or precious metals. It never. Uh, I just don't think anyone needs more than that. But I think it's a good thing. And then crypto, like it's an alternative investment. I hate that it's so tied to the markets, which is not what it was supposed to be, but that's just what it's become. And I, I think crypto's definitely got some legs. If you're playing in the DeFi space, it's interesting. I've been learning a lot about it. I think it, that might have some legs, but you're going to get burned probably a couple times before you figure out what's right and what's wrong there. Well, if you go yeah, into the smaller yeah. projects, you got to yeah, really look at the sure. utility, the yeah. use of it, and what problem it solves, and then and put your, you know, just in, again, law number three of wealth: protect your wealth. And to protect your wealth and follow the laws of wealth, all you do is you should only invest. And I, I, I wholeheartedly mean this. These are laws, folks. It's like gravity. Go to the top of your building and jump. You'll learn what gravity is. You can't change it. Well, you can't change the laws of wealth either. The third law of wealth just says protect your wealth. And in protecting your wealth, you should only invest in things you know, like, and understand. You think Warren Buffett invests in things he doesn't know, like, and understand? That dude studies everything he invests in. He knows it front, back, and sideways. He doesn't invest in many things. But when he invests in something, it's because he knows, likes, and understands it. So let me ask all of you that are watching this, and, and Scott, you as well. Why would you invest in something you don't know, something you don't really like, and something you don't understand? Is it because your Uber driver said, oh, this one's going to the moon? Well, that happened back in the Great Depression to uh, Kennedy Sr. The shoeshine boy was giving him stock tips. He took that as a sign, it's time for me to exit. He got out of the markets, shorted the markets, and made all of his wealth right there. Like, read the story, the shoeshine, shoeshine boy. Um, just... Invest in things you know, like, and understand. If you're going to invest with other people, invest with people that have knowledge through wisdom and time. That is it. And through wisdom and time, they will have failed. So make sure you ask people about their failures. I, I transparently told you all my failures. I've learned because I failed enough times to figure out what didn't work. And I will fail many more times. Uh, recently, I just had another failure. I, I defied the fourth law of wealth. I did an investment seeking unrealistic returns because it sounded 
awesome. And I did it. And I'm going to end up losing probably most all my money in that lesson learned. I, I went against a law and you always learn, you always lose. And you know, the laws again, just go through them super quick for your audience. Okay. Cause I know we're going long, but number one, keep or save one tenth of the money you make gross. If you're not doing that, that's, that's the first step. Law number two, make your money go to work for you. I told you lots of ways to move your money, make your money work for you. Don't leave it sit lazy. Number three, protect your wealth. We just hit that one. Number four, don't seek unrealistic returns. If you do, your money will flee you and don't invest with fraudsters and gurus that promise you unrealistic returns because they will steal your money. Number five, most important one out of every single law, every single day you wake up and every single day you do things, do it with intention to solve someone else's problem. There's not a company in the world that doesn't solve somebody's problem. Scott, your companies solve somebody's problem. That's why they're successful. My companies solve big problems. Private Money Club, my, my e-harmony of money, okay, peer-to-peer -peer lending, solves a really big problem for the average person that doesn't have access to what hedge funds and Wall Street does. To create companies or create things that solve people's problems. And number six and final, in life, work your entire life to create a legacy that's bigger than you. That legacy doesn't have to be the amount of money you leave to your children. Too many people think legacy is that. Leave behind knowledge. Teach your children how money operates. Teach your children these simple laws and principles. I'm writing the book for my daughter so that she understands the laws and the 10 rules to prosperity so that she doesn't ever defy them like her father did and like her father had to ride these roller coasters. My daughter should never have to do that because I'm leaving a legacy by teaching her through my failures and through wisdom. Leave a legacy, folks, every day. Think about that. Focus on it. Just manifest all of those different things. Anything you want in life and anything you ask of life, life will give you. I'm living proof of that. But that doesn't mean it doesn't come with pain, suffering, and hard effing work. There's nothing in life that's easy. And if it is easy, it's too good to be true. And go back to law number four because your money's going to flee you pretty quick. So get it out and then call it a day and just move on. Amazing, man. Okay, let's do, um, I want to do a couple rapid fire to close this out. Before I go into those, um, any last closing thoughts or uh, where should people connect with you, all the social, all the websites, yeah, so people should go check I out. I urge all of you to watch the 90-minute video. Okay, go to chrisnoggle.com. It's N-A-U-G-L-E. It's right on the bottom there, chrisnoggle.com. A 90-minute video will pop up. Just watch the video, and if you want, book a call with us. We don't try to sell you anything. We'll just answer your questions. You can also get all all three and soon to be four of my books for free on the website. Just pay the shipping to your house or get the ebook for free. Um, social media, I'm everywhere. Um, YouTube is at the Chris Noggle. All my channels, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, every single channel out there except for Parlor and uh, the what's the the new one, whatever it is. Um, they're all at. Truth the, the Social, which truth I'm, I'm 468,000 on the waiting list. Um, anyway, it's at the Chris Noggle. I put free content out everywhere. There's, you, you're going to look and you're going to have a very hard time finding out something you can buy from me. I give it all away for free because I understand that you have to solve people's problems and in doing that, it's giving. So that's how you find me. Watch the video, do all that good stuff. Um, and and the, I'll leave with one quote that's changed my life and then we'll go into rapid fire. And it's a quote by Will Rogers. And Will Rogers said this. He said, the biggest problem in America is not what people don't know. The biggest problem in America is what people think they know that just ain't so. 
that hit me hard when I heard that because I was that person that thought I knew what I didn't know. But the problem is what most people think is not what you don't know. It's what you think you know. Amazing. Okay. Um, I appreciate I appreciate everything you've taught over. Um, I'm going to have to listen to this one back again and probably take some notes myself. And then we'll honest. have to do a live interview. <laughs> this down is, this is the very place. good. You can you 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 teach over a lot. So you're coming to Miami. We'll do a live one in studio. Whenever you're down here, it'll be we'll figure out other stuff to go into. <laughs> I'm sure I'll, I'll pick another topic that you talk about Love on it. YouTube. We'll go into something else. Um, we can talk about we can talk about your, we, talk, we didn't talk about fintech. We didn't talk about really what you're actually building yeah, out. So we can do one. something on that and and why that's necessary. Okay, cool. Um, all right. What keeps you up at night right now? What keeps me up at night is the fear that I'm not doing enough for others. That I'm not giving enough. What's the biggest challenge you've overcome in your personal, professional life? Letting my ego go. You know, we build an ego when we have levels of success, and shedding the ego was the hardest thing and the biggest challenge I had to overcome when I was an advisor. Uh, it's an ego-driven industry, and getting rid of it was like ripping my my soul out. But I had to shed it. Your favorite source to learn or grow, book, podcast, something you'd recommend. You've recommended a few, but. If you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Then last question, what does success mean to you? Success is your impact on others. When you, success should not be determined by the amount of money you have in the bank. It should be determined by the amount of lives you change and the success stories from others because of what you did to help them. And folks, don't think that that means you got to donate money or give money. I mean, just make people laugh, make people smile, give them one word of encouragement. You never know who is hanging on by a pinky. They might look like they've got the perfect life, the cars, the houses. They might be hanging on by a pinky, and all they need is you to tell them, it's all going to be good, man. It's all going to be good. You're doing great. That might allow them to then grab on with two fingers. And uh, it's such an important thing. That's the measure of success. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. 
Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit. And that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, 
drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive, and I bet you we've all been there, and maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real, there are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success that's s-u-c-c-e-s-s to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with belay 